break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch-Out. 29th of June, 2021. Very happy to be back with you. And we have got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. There are tens of millions of people still struggling with food and rent. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about the sharpening crisis in Ethiopia. A lot going on, really, in just the past 24 hours there. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we are going to start with the Delta variant of COVID-19. That has been sparking worldwide fears about the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a variant um, that we've been following closely around the world and now here in the United States. What we know about when viruses mutate and create these variants is they tend to do so with some advantage to the virus. And in this case, we're seeing that advantage manifest in a way that it is more transmissible. Now what we're finding is this Delta variant is even more transmissible than the UK variant. So not only is it more transmissible, but there is some concern that it actually may lead to more severe illness. So we're watching that really carefully. That was the director of the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, Rochelle Walensky, talking about the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus that has been sweeping the world, raising fears about the possibility of undermining the progress that has been made in combating COVID-19 and further setting back areas where the progress has been minimal. Obviously, then the question on everyone's mind is, should they be worried? Short answer, if you are vaccinated, you don't have to be that worried. If you're not vaccinated, you should be quite worried. But considering the context of the Delta variant, there is indeed a real worry for the world at large as it concerns whether or not we will really be able to end this pandemic. So just to start with the basics here, what is the Delta variant? Now, COVID-19 is these things called spike proteins, and that's what helps them bind to human cells. That's how you get infected. The variants like Delta variant basically just make the binding process more efficient and effective, meaning smaller amounts of the virus are needed to actually infect you, which by extension means it can spread a lot faster overall because every particle is more likely to actually latch onto a cell tightly and thus be able to spread the COVID-19 virus into that cell. And it also means as the virus multiplies in your body, it does so more efficiently. So the virus is more likely to spread quickly and overwhelm potential immune responses. How much more transmissible is it than the regular COVID? Well, that's not exactly clear, but estimates range anywhere from 30% to 100%. And there isn't clear evidence really on if the Delta variant is more dangerous per se, but there are certainly some who think existing evidence leans in that direction. So what about the vaccines? So far, most of the vaccines in use seem to be working well against the Delta variant. Public Health England has actually done two studies on this so far. The first one found that Pfizer was 88% effective against the Delta variant. The second study, however, found that two shots of Pfizer were 96% effective against the Delta variant, 92% after one shot. They found that after one shot, AstraZeneca was only 71% effective after one dose, but 92% effective after two. 
We don't have enough survey data to say much about Moderna on this front, but most researchers think it's probably similar to Pfizer. Sputnik 5 has yet to announce specific results yet, but the scientists behind it believe that it actually is highly effective against the Delta variant and are actually planning to release more information, both specifically about that and a new booster shot, it says, is tailored directly to the Delta variant. So a number of different data points, but the basic fact being that the vaccines have not, in fact, been overwhelmed by the Delta variant and seem to deal with it quite well. But the best overall evidence for all of this really isn't these isolated studies. It's the general trends in terms of the relationship between vaccination, declining cases and death rates, which is holding up that as vaccination goes up, cases and death rates tend to decline. In the U.S., where vaccination has been steadily increasing, cases are down 15% as of today and deaths down 16%. That's a 15-day average. Of the 19 states and territories with over 50% of people fully vaccinated, only three have a rising case total, and all three of those still have a falling hospitalization rate. Internationally, the trend is similar. Chile, for instance, and interestingly, one of the countries that's been most consistently hit for the vaccination, having a vaccination program that, while vast, has not had much effect, and the mass media has been saying it's because they've been using Chinese vaccines, well, they actually have a 39% decline in cases in Chile, with 55% of the country being vaccinated. Hungary has 50% of the country vaccinated. It's seeing a 57% decline in cases. Now, that being said, there are many more outliers on the international front. Israel, for instance, which is the country most associated with rapid vaccinations and getting large proportions of the population vaccinated, where the Delta variant, by the way, is present, is seeing an increase in cases. It's also worth noting California is seeing an increase in cases, although still a decrease in hospitalizations, but the Delta variant is also there in California. So while the general trend certainly seems to hold up, one thing that seems fairly clear is that the rapid spread of the Delta variant in the unvaccinated population can cause smaller, yes, but denser and faster developing outbreaks that can get ahead of the vaccination process and start to erode progress, especially now that there's less social pressure to social distance and wear masks and so on and so forth that allow unvaccinated people to essentially slide as it concerns the various mitigation factors that are there. But given what we said earlier, that the vaccines are effective against the Delta variant, more rapid vaccination, along with the mitigation measures that we're all familiar with at this point, can still curb outbreaks. So again, bottom line, if you're vaccinated, you're probably not in too much trouble here. If you are unvaccinated, you are at an increasing risk. The vaccines still work, and the playbook for how to curb the virus is still good to use, but it is a dangerous situation. And it's dangerous not just in the immediate, but over the longer term. The size of the unvaccinated populations around the world is a major issue. Whether we're talking about Mississippi or Mali, the fact that the Delta variant and any variant of COVID-19, for that matter, can spread rapidly and quickly amongst populations makes it a greater chance that there will be more opportunities for the virus to mutate even more, which raises the specter of a vaccine resistant virus emerging, potentially one that spreads even faster than the Delta variant. Scary stuff, which means to curb the pandemic. The issue is still that we are in a race against time to vaccinate the world. And the longer it takes, the more likely it is that variants, which we know how to control now, could grow outside of our control in a serious way. And on the front of vaccinations, well, it's not going well. The head of the World Health Organization said three days ago, quote, our world is failing as the global community. We are failing, end quote. 
The COVAX mechanism for poor countries to obtain vaccines is well far behind on not only what they need to deliver, but what they even need to procure. The main supplier, the Serum Institute of India, has more or less stopped exporting vaccines given the situation in that country where COVID is massively surging. There's a shortage of about 190 million doses from where things should be vis-a-vis COVAX right now at this point in the year. And while the G7 countries announced that they would donate vaccines to try to make up the shortfall, there's basically no timetable for that happening, and there's no evidence that it's happening rapidly or at scale right now. Also, and critically important, there are still severe shortages of all sorts of equipment needed to produce vaccines. Even with an easing of U.S. export restrictions, there are just too few companies with too little capacity having to serve every company trying to make vaccines. So there's a huge mismatch there. For instance, one of the major companies that makes something called bioreactor bags, that's a critical element in the vaccine supply chain, says that they have a 16 to 18 week lead time for new shipments of its bags to be able to go out. So there's quite a bit happening. And really at every level, this is happening from syringes to dry ice. There are shortages that are disrupting vaccine production and distribution. Ultimately, a worldwide effort is needed to overcome all these challenges. But so far, the richer countries have been primarily hoarders and collaboration around the world has been basically minimal. It's a critical moment to be sure. And the question is, is the country with the most capacity, the United States, going to step up and do something. Those were the sounds of tens of thousands of Ethiopians protesting a few weeks ago against U.S. sanctions on the Ethiopian government as it relates to the ongoing conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. The conflict has taken a few sharp turns in really just the past 24 hours. Yesterday afternoon, the Ethiopian government declared a unilateral ceasefire and stated that the Tigrayan capital of Mekeli was under government control. This also came as Eritrean soldiers who are allied with Ethiopia seem to be leaving the fight and potentially even withdrawing from the country, another indication that perhaps things were coming to a close. However, last night, at least East Coast time here in the United States, Tigrayan forces rejected the ceasefire, launched a counteroffensive, pledged to expand the war into other parts of Ethiopia and into Eritrea, and claimed to have retaken the capital, thus ensuring that the conflict will deepen and continue. The eight-month conflict has created significant confusion internationally, as the press reporting has been quite one-sided and lacking in context. Many claims of human rights atrocities by the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, with varying levels of corroboration accompanying them, have been made and used to set the international context that the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, TPLF, are the good guys and that the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces are the bad guys. And the U.S. has followed on with sanctions on the so-called bad guys in Ethiopia. Now, if that sounds a little too simplistic for you and probably not what's happening, you would be right. As we've consistently pointed out here on the punch out, this narrative has many problems. Now, as we've also said here before, this is a war. Wars are very brutal. So we aren't here to dispute this or that charge. But there are crucial questions that need to be raised. First, and this is absolutely critical for context, is how the war got started. It's been lost in the international media, but the TPLF started a massive armed uprising involving advanced military equipment that has led to a massive war in the country because elections were postponed due to COVID-19. Yes, that's right. 
The Ethiopian government had decided to postpone elections at one point last year. Those elections have at least partially taken place now in most of the country, but they decided to postpone the elections because of the pandemic. This obviously happened all around the world, but the TPLF went ahead and accused them of being anti-democratic and authoritarian. Now, the first clue that this is a pretext, not the real issue, is that the TPLF ruled the country of Ethiopia for decades after 1991 and was known for being extremely anti-democratic with their own documented history of ethnic cleansing, a policy of pitting nationalities inside of the country against each other and massive corruption. And all that went along with total fealty to the U.S. war on terror, quote unquote, agenda after 9-11, including being the main partner of the U.S. in destabilizing Somalia in the late 2000s there, which led to the current al-Shabaab conflict raging to this day in the country of Somalia, deeply destabilizing that country. In reality, the Tigrayan move was a power play. They lost power specifically because their style of rule was so disruptive, so unpopular, it was leading to mass uprisings all around the country, particularly from the Oromo people, and they were unable to put these down. That led to the ascension of the current Ethiopian president, Abiy Ahmed, who did emerge from the ruling coalition, but who freed thousands of political prisoners, moved to focus more on development and poverty alleviation, started patching up relations with Eritrea, a longtime antagonist of Ethiopia with whom several wars had been fought, and generally preaching a more open regime than the TPLF one. Changes that were so stark that he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for them. Clearly, the TPLF was threatened by this and the possibility that not only had they lost power at the center, so to speak, but that events may be leading to their isolation overall in the country after decades as the sole holder of power and the enrichment that came along with that since they were siphoning billions of dollars from government funds every year. And for months before the conflict, they had been conducting military parades, and it's worth noting, they have openly declared that they did indeed start the conflict. And in fact, one TPLF spokesman even compared their quote-unquote preemptive strike against Ethiopian government forces to the Israeli preemptive strikes conducted against Arab states. Interesting comparison to make. Their agenda, the TPLF that is, seems to be based on establishing a form of federalism or outright independence that will give them total power over their region and potentially beyond. Ultimately, it's a power struggle. Can Ethiopia move on from the TPLF domination of the national agenda, the structure of the country, and so on? And that's how it's been since 1991. Or can they not? And that raises the other major question, since this really isn't hidden information that I just gave you. Why has the international media and the so-called international community been so one-sided, so devoid of context? Why do we only hear about the conduct of one side when the other side has a long history of its own terrible actions that would lead one to believe there's more to the story of how and why things are or are not happening concerning human rights? Well, for the Western nations, it's probably logical that they would support their longtime client and regional proxy and hope that any political solution to this conflict would give them more leverage in the affairs of Ethiopia and a crucial region in the world. Of course, the Horn of Africa borders the world's largest commercial route. And we saw with the issue of the ship in the Suez Canal how serious that can be for the world economy. And also, the Horn of Africa contains many natural and human resources, including the headwaters of the Nile River. For the media, one has to ask, are they complicit in the agenda of Western powers or are they willfully ignorant? It's hard to say, but for sure, the information leaking into the world media on Ethiopia is badly distorted. It seems most likely that the war will continue to rage as long as the TPLF is allowed to posture as good and righteous and without fault. Anyone looking for real easing of the humanitarian situation in Ethiopia 
Well, that's only going to come when there's a more balanced approach adopted to how to view the conflict. There are still people struggling despite that added $300. Keeping this $300 um, going at least until people can get on their feet is like necessary. Nobody's living fantastically um, on this unemployment, especially without the $300. Well, those were the voices of protesters in the state of Florida who were recently standing up against the ending of unemployment insurance benefits in that state. And those comments are a welcome reminder that amidst all the hype about how the economy is coming back. That many tens of millions of people continue to face very serious hardships in this economy. According to the most recent Census Bureau household poll survey from early June, some 20 million people, about 10% of adults, reported their household was food insufficient. That means that they either sometimes or often didn't have enough to eat in the last week. An estimated 10.5 million adults, 14% of adult renters, reported not being caught up on rent. And some 63 million people, 27% of adults, reported difficulty covering usual household expenses in the last seven days, including food, medical payments, student loans, rent, or mortgage. And this crisis-level situation for so many also reflects the deep racist disparities that continue to exist in American capitalism. For instance, 15% of black households and 17% of Latino households were unable to get enough food to eat in early June as compared to 7% of white households. 42% of black households and 38% of Latino households were struggling to afford basic expenses as compared to 21% of white households. 24% of black renters were behind on rent as compared to 10% of white renters. Now, one could certainly note these numbers are better than they were in late 2020, but it's also worth noting that they come several months after the last relief bill, a reflection of how the hundreds of billions of dollars that were pumped into the economy while having a positive effect for many has still left a situation where almost 30 percent of all adults are struggling to pay for their basic expenses. This also serves as just yet another data point among many. That makes a mockery of the idea that people are somehow just hanging out at home, chilling on unemployment. Yet, despite all this, literally millions of people are being kicked off of unemployment insurance right now. And with these levels of hardship, you can see why. Forcing people back into the workforce at any cost is good for capitalists. It means they'll be better able to pit workers who are desperate against each other and keep wages and benefits low. Profit over people. That's the real American way. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.